Marketing of the past meant creating the best-looking ad or having the catchiest jingle for maybe, just maybe, the chance for someone to pick you. Today, why to pick yourself and embrace what you do in your marketing as an act of service. And who better to teach us than my guest, Seth Godin. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 381. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. One of the many skill sets that leaders need in today's world, of course, is the ability to market and marketing, perhaps in the traditional sense, but marketing of how to influence the world. The world has changed a lot. The technology we have access to has changed a lot in the last few decades. And today's guest has been someone who has been a leader very much at the forefront of thinking and practical advice on how to be more effective in this new space. I am thrilled to welcome to the show today, Seth Godin. Seth was recently inducted into the American Marketing Association's Hall of Fame. He runs the marketingseminar.com and also created the Alt-MBA, a remarkable month-long workshop that helps leaders level up. He is the author of 18 bestsellers that have been translated into more than 35 languages. And he's the author of one of the most popular blogs in the world found at Seth's.blog. I have been reading and listening to Seth's work for almost 20 years, and he's, in my opinion, the world's leading expert on marketing in the digital age. And he is the author of the new book, This Is Marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. Seth, it is a pleasure to welcome you. Wow. Thank you for that kind introduction, David. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. I, 20 years ago, and still have on my shelf a copy of Permission Marketing. It was the first marketing book I ever read. It set the stage for my thinking on it. It got me into all kinds of uncomfortable situations with other people (laughs) who didn't agree with the philosophy over the years. And it set the stage for the Coaching for Leaders business. For all of that, sir, I thank you. Well, the thanks go back to you. It's not an easy thing to show up regularly and lead. Leading and managing are different. And you can tell a leader when you meet one. So thank you. The subtitle of this new book is You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, you know, when we think about marketing, we tend to think about the stereotypical, selfish, narcissistic, shortcutting, attention craving scam artist. And I'm unalterably opposed to that. But the alternative is instead of saying, I have a key, let me try it everywhere I can to see what lock it opens. The alternative is to see what the people you seek to serve need and want, what they fear and what they dream of, and then go make a key that fits that lock. And it's about seeing first, and then the second thing is creating a culture that leads to the change that matters to you. When you think about marketing today versus when permission marketing published 20 years ago. What's the distinction now between those who are able to do this successfully and everyone else out there? Well, it's difficult to remember, but 24 years ago, when I first started really messing with this, almost no one in the mainstream 
was dependent on email, the chances that you had to reach a large number of people, unless you had a lot of money, was basically zero. Those two things meant that what marketing was, was the act of using money to yell at average people about average stuff over and over again. And that's why most people don't think of themselves as marketers, because they don't work for Oreo or Coke or Hewlett Packard. And therefore, they think they do something else. But what has shifted, like I had to persuade people when I was building Yo-Yo Dine that email was a thing. And what has shifted is that email is more than a thing. It is a metaphor for the hundred other methods we now have to connect with each other, SMS or Insta or Facebook or whatever it is. All of them are micro markets. There's no mass medium left. All of them are tiny groups of people who are connected to one another for free. And that changes everything. And mostly what it does is it makes it voluntary. You don't connect to people you don't want to connect to. And since it's voluntary, it's leadership. It's not management. You don't get to tell people what to do. When you think of that distinction between leadership and management, how does that play out for you when you think about marketing? Well, so managers work with people they have authority over and they get them to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. And management is really important. Management enables our industrial economy to work. But leadership is the act of not being sure. And it's also the act of not having control or even authority, that it's voluntary. I'm going over there. Who wants to come with me? Those are the leaders in our world. And the leaders are always sort of foraging around in the dark, trying to turn on a light. And marketers can be managers, in which case they've taken over a brand that already works and they're just cranking it out. But the important marketers are leaders. They are testing, they are evolving, they are figuring out what will open the lock and what won't. And therefore, what we have to do if we're going to head into the world wanting to make a change happen, which is my definition of marketing, we also have to go in knowing we may fail. One of the quotes from this new book is, marketers spend a lot of time talking and on working on what we're going to say. We need to spend far more time doing. That, that lines up for me really convincingly with what you just said about leadership and handling change. You know, let's think about whether you're a good boss or not. If I asked in a you know, 360 evaluation, the people who work for you, are you a good boss? The answer isn't necessarily going to be based on what would happen if I asked McKinsey or Accenture if you're a good boss, because they see a thousand bosses or 10,000 bosses and they know what to compare it to. And they are focused on metrics. But your employees, you're the only boss they've got. And they are judging you on a totally different spectrum than you may think. And that what human beings do is we tell ourselves stories. We tell ourselves a story about sufficiency or insufficiency, about fear, about greed, about desire, about our impact, and about dignity and respect. And if the people who work for you are telling themselves a story that you are a selfish short-term manager, well, then it's true. It may not be true from the outside, but if they believe it, then that's what they're living. So each of us has the ability to market the work we are doing through our actions. Because when people see our actions, when they interact with us, 
they may tell themselves a different story. One of the folks that you and I have both been influenced by is Zig Ziglar. And one of his famous quotes that I love is, don't be a wandering generality, be a meaningful specific. When you think about this new world, and, and as you just described, how does that show up for you today? Well, the key, the book is filled with theft from the beginning to the end. And one of the key things I stole was the idea of the minimum viable audience. So inspired all those years ago by Zig being a meaningful specific, the breakthrough here is that what I'm arguing is that anyone who wants to make change happen has to embrace the fact that you cannot change everyone. In fact, you can change almost no one, but that will be enough. If the right people engage with your message and take appropriate action, that will be enough. So the hard work begins by choosing the smallest group of people you can live with and ignoring everyone else. That shunning the non-believers keeps you from making average stuff for average people and lets you focus on doing this work that matters instead. My sense is that for many people, that is a big change from how they have been taught oh, yeah. what marketing's about. And you really challenged my thinking on this years ago and your work on tribes of thinking about having the smallest possible market versus having the largest possible market. The world has really changed on this, hasn't it? Well, it changes everything because it makes you afraid. And here's why. If you say, I am seeking to reach everyone, then you can happily wait for Oprah Winfrey to call you on the phone. That you can keep along making your average stuff that's blameless, that's for the middle, that's mediocre, knowing that deep down you're waiting to be a mass market hit. But the thing is, it's not going to work. It's when you go to the edges and burn your boats and focus on the obsessively small group of people that you can delight, that is when you can build something of substance. And even Coca-Cola started that way. Airbnb started that way. The TED conference started that way. Every politician started that way. And so what we have to accept is that the scary part comes first. And the scary part is to say, I stand for something. When the world used to be people waited and organizations waited for someone to pick them. And one of the things that I've heard you saying a lot in the last few years is, I'm going to stand up and pick myself first and be the kind of person that shows up and tries things and does that with a few people and goes from there rather than waiting on someone else or some other entity. But it only works if you are doing that on behalf of those you seek to serve. If you are selfishly picking yourself, that's not going to get you anywhere. But if you see a problem and you're the person who volunteers to solve it, that's what we call leadership. I suspect that people confuse that often who are well-meaning, but end up picking themselves versus thinking about serving. When you see people make that choice, what is the indicators that they're on the right path or that maybe they're thinking about it from more of a selfish standpoint? Well, in our capitalist economy, certainly the biggest giveaway is, would you do it if you weren't getting paid? And, you know, we, there was a guy in town who was selling 
hydrogenated water that somehow had magical ions that would make you live forever. And he was a well-meaning guy, but it was really clear that if he wasn't getting a commission, there's no way on earth he'd be walking around selling ionized water. And there's nothing wrong with making a living, but if you start telling yourself this story that you're there to serve, but at the same time, you're maximizing your profit, one of those two things probably isn't happening. You mentioned earlier the word shortcut. Everyone loves a good shortcut. You prefer the long cut. Tell me more about that. Well, the shortcut has been well explored. Lots of people in a hurry have tried it before you and it hasn't worked. That the most reliable way to make the change we seek to make is the way that everyone else thinks is too long and too difficult. As Paul Graham says, that if you do the hard stuff, your competitors will be afraid to follow you. And that long cut is where we're able to find true value. So I'll give you an example. I just switched email programs. After all these years, I've been using email the same way everyone else is for free. And I found this email that costs about a dollar a day. And they have a waiting list. And so I sent them a note and I said, I'd love to try it. Well, the way you get to use it is one of the top five officers of the company comes to your office and sits next to you for an hour before they give you an account. Hmm. Now it's only $365 a year. The CEO came to New York and sat with me for an hour, not because I'm a blogger, but because every one of the 5,000 people who use this software has been onboarded for an hour by one of these five people. And you say, well, that's absurd. And that's exactly the point. Because other companies who aren't as well-funded or who aren't as focused won't do that work. So they will have software that doesn't work as well for the people they seek to serve because they will not have sat there watching people use it. And their conversion rate won't be 100%, which it is for these guys, because after an hour with the CEO, of course you're going to sign up. Their conversion rate will be 5%. So they did the longest possible road, which is, he told me they're going to keep onboarding one person at a time until they hit 10,000 or so people. That's absurd, hmm. which is exactly why it's going to be a breakthrough company. That is indeed such a different way of thinking about it than most organizations are still doing today. And I guess it begs the question for me, and we have, of course, many people in our audience who do work in large organizations that have approached marketing from a more traditional mindset and may embrace varying parts of what you teach, but don't necessarily line up with all of this. When those people talk to you, and say, hey, Seth, I'm in. I get it. I've read your books. I've read your blog. I love what you teach. But my organization isn't there. How do you suggest they consider what's next? I think the expression, my boss won't let me, is a fabulous tell, as there are in poker. Because there are very few organizations where it is true that you will get fired doing the right thing for your customers. It will feel fraught. It will feel scary. But it's not that your boss won't let you. It's that your boss won't take responsibility. She's saying to you, you got to go do it and you own it. And if you do those things, you'll probably do fine. But don't bring it to me in advance and ask me to take all the risk so you can take all the credit. That what we've seen 
in organizations big and small, famous and non-famous, is almost all the important change does not come from the CEO's office. It comes from someone in the middle, somebody in the middle who takes responsibility and gives away credit. Somebody who says, I don't need authority, I just need to care. And if you, for example, manage seven people and you figure out a way to break through the traditional barrier and get a different level of interaction going with those seven people, if you're the kind of manager who picks up the phone and calls two customers a day just to say hi, if you're the kind of person that organizes a book group in your company, just because if 10 of your peers are reading the same book and talking about it, you think things will change, those kinds of bosses, they're linchpins. They're the ones who get promoted. And if your boss won't promote you, your competitor will. It comes back to what we were talking about earlier too of, am I picking myself for selfish reasons? Or like you just described, am I picking myself because it's the work that needs to be done to serve the customers, the organization, the people I influence? And if I'm coming from it from that place, then that's a great place to be. And if you work for an organization that doesn't support that, then you're working in the wrong place. Yeah. Speaking of organizations and realities today, there's a word that shows up in your book, and I've seen shown up in a few other places, which is the word sharecropping. And most of us haven't seen that word since we were in our high school history classes. And yet it's showing up again today. And one of the things you say in your book is when we use a social media platform, because it has plenty of users built in, we're not really building an asset. If permission is at the heart of your work, own it and keep it. Communicate only with those who choose to hear from you. You should own that, not rent it. I'm really curious about this distinction between ownership and renting and how the word sharecropping comes in. Well, I understand that there's a lot of emotion around that word, and I, I thought twice before using it. But let me try to explain what's happening here. If you use a social network and you're not paying, then you're not the customer. You're the product. You're the product, and they are creating stress for you because people are talking about you behind your back, and they give you a chance to hear what people are saying. And in exchange, they sell ads against your attention. So that's the business model of Facebook and the others. But if you are a marketer, if you're trying to reach people, if you're trying to build something, well, here's what Facebook does. They say to you, build a page, you'll reach 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 of your fans. But then one day, they say, oh, that post you just did, it only reached a third of your fans. Press here to boost it, and you can reach the rest of them for 20 bucks. And at the beginning, lots of people do that because you go, those are my people, I need to reach them. But what becomes really clear is that at scale, the social networks are taking ownership of your social graph and your connection to people, and they will charge you to use it. The alternative is to have a direct connection with people. That if you have a list of people, 100, who will read an SMS anytime you send it to them, there's no middleman there. That there are a million people who have given me their email address to take care of. I don't own it. And if I send them a note on my blog, many of them read it. If I didn't send them a note, they would miss it. So the challenge of a permission marketer, the simple question is who would miss you if you were gone? If you didn't send that note tomorrow, 
who would call you up and complain, right? That if the Coaching for Leaders podcast didn't come out next week, there are thousands of people around the world who would wonder what happened to you. That's a permission asset. But when you let a middleman decide who gets to listen to you, who gets to hear from you, you don't own the asset any more than you don't own a machine if you have to beg someone to use it every time you need it. And one of the things I think is interesting is we presumably have access to everyone in the age of the internet. We can reach out to anyone on Twitter. We can reach out to anyone in all kinds of mediums. And so there's at least the illusion, if not fully true, of open access. And yet, what you've just described is a world where it's the pay-to-play access, if, if I'm framing that right. Here's a way to think about it. You know, I did some canvassing 10 years ago in New Hampshire. And what I discovered is doorbells don't exist in the neighborhood that I was in in New Hampshire. Houses did not have doorbells. Why was that? Well, it took me a little while to figure it out. And then I realized, if you're a friend, come on in. And if you're not, go away. There's no one in between. And the same thing is true here. That what we're saying is, yes, you could find someone's email address and you could spam them, but they're not going to read it and they're not going to get back to you. So there are two kinds of people. People who trust you, who are paying attention to you, who want to hear from you, and everyone else. And in the old days, the way you reached everyone else was, was with money by giving it to NBC or ABC. But now that doesn't work very well. You strike me as someone who's remarkably intuitive on being able to see what's coming down the horizon that maybe the rest of us don't see as well or as clearly. And I am curious how you've thought about what's next in this space we all live in today, where today, you know, anyone can put up a podcast or create an email list. Does that still the case 10, 15 years from now? Or is this a unique moment in some ways for those who really do want to create something where there is nothing and engage in that no middleman kind of relationship? Well, what's next is what's been next for 20 years, which is the economy is determined now by peer-to-peer -peer access, sideways horizontal access. There is always going to be a race for someone to have the big switch that they can turn on and turn off. The central control panel, the Yahoo, the Google, the Facebook, that keeps you from having this peer-to-peer -peer connection with people. I think in that arms race, the peer-to-peer -peer stuff continues to win. But what's also true is that the best time to have started this list, this permission, was 20 years ago. And the second best time to start is today, that you're planting trees from seed and so will someone be able to start a podcast in five years? Of course they will. Will it grow as fast as if they start it now? No way. To that point, a lot of people call you a marketing expert, including me. And I know you get a lot of people asking you things like showing you plans and saying, will this work? <laughs> when you get that question, how do you respond to people? Well, before they get to the third word, I'm in another room. So I, <laughs> I have never actually seen any of these plans because it's a little like telling someone their baby's ugly. There's not a lot of upside there. By the time it turns into a plan, I don't do any consulting at all, but I give free advice to nonprofits and stuff. And that's why I started the marketing seminar because I need to help people fix their own plan. 
because I can't fix it for them. And it comes down to who's it for? What's it for? How will you build the core asset you need? What will people tell their friends? Why will people tell their friends? Because if you don't know who it's for and what's it for, and no one's going to talk about it, then of course it's not going to work. So what do you tell people to do as the first step then? I wrote a blog post a bunch of years ago called First 10, and it's one of my favorites. And what it says is, tell 10 people. Everyone has 10 people. Tell 10 people. If those 10 people don't ask you for more, or those 10 people don't share it with others, it's not very good. Start over. Find something that will amaze and delight the 10. And if you can't, then start over. Mm. Goes back to that smallest possible market versus trying to wait and wait and wait for someone to pick us from the mass market perspective. I have to ask you something about education because you've done so much thinking and writing about education and learning over the years. I have had and continue to get questions from our listeners and clients who are very well educated and in many cases have master's degrees or multiple master's degrees, and they are starting something new. They're making a career shift or they're starting a side hustle or in some cases starting an entrepreneurial venture. And the question often comes my way of, what MBA program should I think about or which <laughs> which master's degree? You get these questions too. I'm really curious with all the work you've done with the Alt-MBA, what are the kinds of things that you encourage highly educated professionals to be thinking about when they're framing that decision? Well, I think the math is pretty simple. If you are going to get a job or want to get a job at Bain, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, a hedge fund, or one of a dozen other places, the return on investment of going to a top six business school is enormous. And if you can afford to take two years off from your life and put up a couple hundred grand in opportunity cost, then I can't argue against it. But if that's not what you want to do, or if you can't get into one of the top five business schools, you should run away, run away, run away. There is no evidence that this is a useful way to spend two years of your life. You're just hiding. That business is not an academic pursuit, nor is there a license involved. So it's not like you're getting a you know, PhD in rhinoplasty technique so you can go be a plastic surgeon. You are seeking the confidence to do this work that matters. And this is a dumb way to get the confidence. The way you get the confidence is by doing the work. And if you're trying to move horizontally or across a chasm in your career, the single best way to do that in the business world is to show us your work. Do not show us your resume. Show us your work. Because if your work is important and people are noticing your work, they will call you. You don't have to call them. And too often, because we got brainwashed by the placement office and by the whole academic mindset of getting an A, we think we deserve it. We earn it. We get picked. And the great jobs in business don't go to those people anymore. They go to people who figured out how to do a piece of work that other people will talk about. The people who show up in your Alt-MBA program, I'm sure are in some ways people like me who have, are needing to unlearn some of what we've learned in a lot of the higher education programs and our societies taught us. When they're in the process of doing some of that unlearning 
and showing up and doing the work, what, if anything, do you see that gets them to take that first step? Well, the Alt-MBA is absolutely thrilling for me to be part of. You know, we've run 26 sessions. There's no video in it. I'm not in it. It's not get tutored from Seth. It is a cohort of 125 people who see each other, who do 12 or 13 projects together. They're in 44 countries. It's all remote. And we've got coaches. More than 80 of them are coming to our reunion in a couple of weeks. And what we have found is the act of learning to say, I made this, the ability to imagine what happens if you give and get feedback in enormous quantities. This emotional shift is essential if we're going to open the door to people figuring out what they're capable of. And so the reason that we run it the way we run it is to create that emotional shift first. That's why there's the application process. That's why we don't publish a curriculum because it's not about access to information. It's about going to the gym, finding a trainer, and figuring out how to see yourself as a different kind of leader. One of the questions I often ask experts who are on the show is what they've changed their minds on. And leadership, of course, as is marketing, is about trying things and failing and changing your mind on things sometimes. Seth, as you've been writing and publishing and running the Alt-MBA and the marketing seminar over the last few years, what have you changed your mind on? I'm way more sympathetic to people who are stuck because it's not about effort. I've seen people put in huge amounts of effort and remain stuck. Effort is insufficient to overcome fear and it's insufficient to overcome brainwashing. That by seeing this challenge that people have and being open-hearted about it and realizing that we need to help people change their story before we tell them to sweat more, that has been a game changer for me. In, in the new book, I talk about the noise inside everyone's head. And when you realize that everyone has a noise like you have a noise, but that everyone's noise is different, it gets way easier to be able to see those you seek to serve. You having that perspective now, if I watched a conversation between you and someone who was there struggling today versus a conversation maybe you had five or 10 years ago, what's different that you're saying or not saying in that conversation? Well, I think the biggest difference is you have to leave enough space for people to tell themselves a story because hearing the story from someone else is insufficient. Seth, I so appreciate your time. I appreciate your work and how much you've shown up so consistently over these last 20 years. I can't wait for the next 20. And I would encourage everyone in our audience to check out the new book. This is marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. Thanks so much for your leadership, Seth. Oh, it's a privilege. And thank you for doing this show week in and week out. I'm really glad to have done it with you. Thanks, Dave. If today's conversation was useful to you, several past episodes that will also be helpful. One of them is episode 184, Getting Things Done with David Allen. If you, like me, are coming out of this conversation with Seth Godin thinking about what's the next step, 
David Allen's Getting Things Done model is a great place to begin. When he was on the show, he talked about the fact that when it comes to productivity and achievement, a lot of us have two problems, (laughs) knowing where to go. And then secondly, knowing the next step. If you are trying to think of what's the next step for you, episode 184 is a great starting point for that. Also helpful to you will be episode 223, Start With Why, featuring Simon Sinek. You heard Seth make the distinction today of us not picking ourselves for just the sake of picking ourselves and being selfish. More importantly, picking ourselves so that we make the decision to lead and influence and ultimately to be able to serve others better. The real why for what most of us are doing out there in the world and wanting to achieve. And that why comes front and center for Simon Sinek on how we as leaders can really begin to clarify that for our organization, for ourselves, and for the people that we have the privilege to lead. And if you're looking for the inspiration to begin that for yourself, episode 223 is a great starting point. I'd also recommend episode 238, How to Be a Nonconformist with Adam Grant. Uh, Being a successful marketer today, as we talked about with Seth, is a little bit about being a nonconformist, doing things differently than everyone else is doing. And when you do things differently than everyone else is doing, it pushes some boundaries. And also, there's a lot of misconceptions that come along with that. One of the things that's fascinating about Adam Grant's work is he's looked at those who are doing original work, the people we traditionally think of as the entrepreneurs, and how many of the things that we think about and assume about those people are not not necessarily the things that are really true. If you are on an entrepreneurial journey, either externally and running your own firm, or you are wanting to be more innovative and entrepreneurial within your role in an organization or leading an organization, episode 238 is a great starting point for you. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 239, How to Succeed with Leadership and Management with my guest, John Cotter. Cotter, of course, one of the uh, main voices on organizational change over the last generation. And he talked about his model on that episode. He also talked about the reality that many organizations face and many of you listening face, which is working for organizations that are fairly successful, have had a good track record, and now need to continue to innovate in order to take the next step forward in serving people today and continuing to grow and change and respond to a changing marketplace. If that is a challenge you are facing right now, episode 249 is a great place to start for some inspiration from John Cotter. And you can reach all of those past episodes just by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. You can search by topic of all the episodes since 2011 if you have your free membership already set up. If you don't, it'll give you a chance to set up your free membership right there. And when you do, it's going to give you access to a whole bunch of things in our library. In addition to every podcast episode searchable by topic, you're also going to get access to my free 10-day audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get the most immediate practical action to become a better leader. In addition, you're going to get access to all of the member casts, my own personal library, 
and including all of my book notes. Uh, Many of you who followed the show for a while know that whenever I interview an author, almost always I've read the book, as I did with Seth's book today, of course, and I take notes as I'm preparing for conversations with authors and experts. Those notes are available to you. They'll be in this week's weekly leadership guide coming on Wednesday for the notes from Seth's book, and also inside the free membership are access to all of the notes of the folks I've interviewed over the last year or so once that technology became available through Kindle to export notes. So again, you can access all of that by just going over to coachingforleaders.com, setting up your free membership and give you access to all the podcasts, the book notes, the library, and a ton more that's up there as well. Thank you for the 12,000 of you who have done that in the last couple of years. Man, What a big community we've had of discovery on the website. Thank you so much. Next week, I am glad to welcome Dan Shawbell back to the show. He is going to be sharing his research on how to inspire shared learning. One of the hats that we wear as leaders in many organizations is being the person who's inspiring and setting the tone for learning and discovery in the organization. And next week, Dan's going to be sharing with us what are some of the strategies, tools, and next steps we can take in order to inspire that learning in our organization. Don't miss it. And see you next Monday for the conversation with Dan. Take care.